everybody and welcome to Global Impact. Here we are again. Uh, welcome, Michael. Are you safe back in Ukraine? Yes, safe here in Lviv, yes. safe and sound in Lviv. A few air raid siren alarms, but um, I know. it's uh, part, part of the kind of uh, routine of being here now. Amazing guest. She's a friend of yours. She's a historian specialized in Ukraine and Russia history. Would you like to introduce her? Okay, yes, um, I first met uh, Alessio Khramichuk um, in person uh, in, I guess it was early December of last year. And, uh, but we had been in contact beforehand because a lot of our lines of activity cross very much. Alessia is director of the Ukrainian Institute, aside from being a historian and a recognized scholar. And, uh, but I'll just go over her bio here. Um, she's officially known as a historian of 20th 20th century East Central Europe, specializing in Ukrainian history. Uh, she has a PhD from the prestigious uh, University College in London. And uh, she probably previously taught at uh, King's College in London, the University of East Anglia, University College London, and the University of Cambridge, the very prestigious University of Cambridge. And uh, Alessio also runs a theater company called uh, Molody Theatre London that explores urgent social and political themes. Uh, originally from Lviv, Ukraine, uh, where I am right now, uh, Alessio moved to the United Kingdom in the year 2000. And since then, as I said, she's been actively engaged in the life of uh, the Ukrainian community in London and beyond. Um, she is the author of Undetermined Ukrainians, a post-war narrative of the Waffen-SS Galicia Division, and the most recent book, of course, A Loss, the story of a dead soldier told by her, his sister. And of course, that is, as we'll get into this conversation, Alessa tragically lost her brother who was fighting in the Donbass, um, the war there that started in 2014. I have to say that I've met uh, many Ukrainian community leaders on both sides of the Atlantic, and it's hard to beat the energy and determination of Alessia that whoever I talk to, whether it's religious leaders or political leaders or scholars, and sometimes I know from having a father who is a professor, there's competition from in, in between scholars that there is just widespread respect for her. So we're, of course, extra happy to have her because of that too. Yeah, I can't wait to meet her and ask her all those questions. You know, I have many questions. She's an artist too. I mean, she, you know, obviously running yeah. a theater company and I just um yeah I'm just uh, fascinated by that side uh, that part of her life so mm -hmm. oh and here we here she is she just jumped in here we go so Alessia thank you so much for making time out of your very busy schedule especially now because I know you're so much in the forefront of activities there in London to make sure that people know what's going on with the war here in Ukraine and also making sure that uh the sufficient response comes from uh, Western governments, including the United Kingdom. But let's start, uh, if we can, with something I think which is a bit more personal to you, in which I've seen you speak many times now about your fantastic book about your brother. We both have actually something in common. I, I lost a brother as well, who was an artist uh, some years ago. And I know the pain of that happening when someone so dear to you uh, leaves before their time. Uh, I, I think a lot of people listening um, will probably have read the book or heard about it, but I'm wondering if you could, we, we could kind of take what you wrote about the war in the Donbass and uh, your brother was killed there. He was a volunteer, yes. And 
whether there's anything from those days in 2014 of how the conflict there was executed and about Russian intentions and about what is happening right now here in Ukraine, we're now day 35, I think, into the war. But especially when it comes to what we take out of what you saw and you know how we should regard the Russians, whether they could even be trusted to keep promises. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Michael and Melissa, for having me on your excellent show uh, and for giving me this platform to speak about these really important uh, questions. And thanks for asking about the book. Uh, I'll just briefly mention that the, the book um, that you're referring to, A Loss, um, the story of uh, a dead soldier told by his sister, um, is, is a story about my, my brother, Volodya, who volunteered to fight in the Ukrainian armed forces in 2015 and um, and then was killed in action in Luhansk region in 2017. Um, and I wrote it because I felt that um, that war, Ukraine, uh, Ukrainian, well, Russia's war in Ukraine that started in 2014 was, was simply forgotten. It was completely gone from headlines very, very quickly after, shortly after 2014. Um, the Ukraine fatigue descended very, very fast uh, in the West. Uh, and it was important to keep raising awareness about it. And one way I thought was important to raise awareness about it was through personal stories personal stories that are also universal. Like you said, Michael, you know, it seems to speak to people who have experienced um, grief, especially losing a sibling or, or losing a loved one in violent circumstances. Um, and through that universal experience, um, they find out about the war in Ukraine. And that's how I wanted to present that book to, uh, to readers. And I had the courage to um, I suppose courage is, is a strange word here. I, I suppose I persuaded myself that I should publish it um, because um, I felt that I'm in such a privileged position living in London, living in the West, um, having access to um, English-speaking audiences, uh, being able to write about this experience and being able to publish about it by uh, sort of a, a, a 35 days ago, by um, before uh, Putin's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, we already lost 14,000 lives in this war, military and civilian, right? And my brother's life was one of them. And I realized that, you know, I'm one of very few people who uh, is able to talk about it. Uh, most other mm -hmm. families are not able to talk about. So that was the kind of reasoning. And I suppose that was something that one of the issues that we have learned is that war fatigue, Ukraine fatigue descends quickly. War fatigue in general descends on people quickly as well. And we need to keep um, telling people these human stories, stories of uh, tragedies. Each one of them is unique that speak to, that are identifiable and you know, that people can relate to. The other thing, I think, a lesson to be learned uh, from the eight years, the first eight years of this war, is that um, Ukrainians know what occupation, what Russian occupation is like. Mm -hmm. Ukrainians understand, um, understand it in practice. They've seen it in Crimea. They've seen it in Donbass. They've seen concentration yeah. camps built. They've seen people abducted in the middle of the night and go missing or arrested on trumped up charges um, and sent to jail for 15 years or more in Russia. 
um, you know, taken away from Crimea or Donbass or kept in basements, and uh, you know, it's impossible to even get get um, any information on them. And I think that's something that is still misunderstood in the West. That Ukrainians know this, and that is why they will not allow this kind of occupation elsewhere in Ukraine, and that is why they are putting up such strong resistance. There's a lot of this fascination with Ukrainian uh, resistance and just how fierce it is, but I think yes. that element is missing. There was, um, I remember when you were talking in London in one of your book talks, and as if the pain uh, and sense of loss is not enough of losing a sibling, but you also, had, you came here and you had to deal with issues of retrieving your brother's belongings and I guess getting documents and that kind of stuff done. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, um, we went to um, the funeral, by we, I mean my, my family and I went to the funeral. The funeral was organized by the municipal authorities in Lviv, and we were so grateful to volunteers and to the city for really taking care of all of those arrangements. We, we, we didn't need to do any of that. And being in that position, you know, of acute grief and shock, uh, it's it was really helpful to have someone, especially volunteers, essentially holding our hands literally throughout that difficult experience. But it's a loss of... Uh, a soldier is a is a bureaucratic affair, and it's not mm. something I was ready to to face. It's not something I thought I would need to go through. We had to go from office to office, collecting various pieces of paper, a death certificate here, um, send a passport and his um, piece of paper proving that he's a war veteran that he's been serving at the front line mm -hmm. somewhere else. Um, and yeah, it just lasted uh, for a long time. It was uh, tough. And then, of course, receiving his belongings from the front line, my friend Maria Berlinska brought them um, and, and not knowing what to do with them. Um, and then and then again, this is when volunteer movement became so uh, important on such a practical level. We saw people help us so quickly and so efficiently collecting those belongings, making sure that they are being used by somebody else, because a lot of them in uniform army boots that I bought in in London and sent to my brother um, at, at the front. I mean, I write about this at length in the book. The yeah. army, boot, book, army, army boots become quite a character in the book themselves. Sure. So yeah, uh, that was um, something unexpected and, and a challenge to go through. And I'm grateful um, to people who are there for me. It's amazing, even during wartime, how bureaucracy can continue to turn on. Um, just I was visiting a major news organization outfit here, and they brought in tons and tons of equipment. But there was one thing that they didn't bring to allow them to function here, and that is the stamp, the company's stamp. Because, Melissa, any document of its worth here needs an official stamp, especially when you deal with government. So <laughs> you're well familiar with that. Um, just quickly, hand the microphone over to Melissa. but. You mentioned something about um, the 2014 war fading out of the public consciousness. Do you have a fear that that might happen with this one? Because I was just talking with Susan Ormiston of CBC News. We were talking about that very topic that we fear um, as this thing grinds on, that it may fade out of the headlines a bit. Absolutely. I think it already is fading out of the headlines. We had a discussion with four Ukrainian journalists uh, yesterday at the Frontline Club in London. They were all in Ukraine. They're covering Ukraine from Ukraine. Um, but the audience and I was here in London and we were discussing that very issue, not just Ukraine fatigue, but war fatigue, how quickly people become... Um, uh, not so much immune to to news reports, but you know, how do you report on Irpin after Mariupol? 
that was the question that uh, Natalia Humanyuk raised. You know, after um, the city is razed to the ground and so many civilians are killed, then we see more explosions, more death, more suffering elsewhere, but on a smaller scale. And somehow that's not a story anymore. I think it's something for us as society to ask ourselves as yeah. well. How do we consume uh, reporting from a war zone? What is it that we're trying to find out? Are we actually learning about this war? How do we learn about it? And of course, for for the media to, to you know, to, to think how they are reporting. Sure. Alyssa? Hi, Alicia, and Hi. welcome. <laughs> So I have a question um, about women. I mean, we saw in the past months the courage and the spirit of Ukrainian women. They stayed in Ukraine to fight some of them in the front line. Um, and it's been very inspiring for us here in the West, for sure. I mean, um, I was in admiration. And uh, where did those women draw their strength and courage? And um, were they preparing for the war? Did they know that was going to happen? And they just kind of mentally, maybe, kind of prepared already? And uh, what's your take on this? Thank you for that question. It's a very important question for me because I am a woman, of course, but also I have uh, studied participation of women in um, armed forces more generally, but in the Second World War historically, but also in the Ukrainian armed forces since the start of the war in Donbass. Um, I think the source of courage, resilience, defiance is the same for all citizens, wherever they are in Ukraine or, or, and whatever gender they are in Ukraine. I, I think the source of courage, resilience and defiance is the same for all citizens of Ukraine. It's the desire to live in a free democratic country, in the country that they've been you know, building at least since 2014, but actually beyond that as well. But I think what's important about Ukrainian women is, is something for us to understand is that they have been fighting on various fronts for a long time. You know, they've been fighting for Ukrainian emancipation, national emancipation, ensuring that Ukraine becomes a democratic country, just like the rest of society or society as a whole. But they've been also fighting for individual emancipation for a long time, ensuring equal uh, gender equality in um, in the country that is reforming. And um, I'll give you an example of service women. Um, what happened in 2014, there were a lot of women on the Maidan, 50% of the protesters were women. And a lot of them then went, uh, volunteered to go to the front, just like a lot of men did. Um, but unlike uh, in the situation with men, um, most of the occupation and the front line were not available legally to women. So they ended up being fighters, snipers, whatever was necessary uh, to, to, to do at the front line, but they were not registered as such because legally they couldn't be because our paternalistic uh, um, labor law and military law did not allow to register them uh, as such. Um, and they started a, a big campaign, advocacy campaign, looking at women's rights in the armed forces and changing that and they achieved significant change in 2016 most of these restrictions were lifted um, and not only that they also achieved the change in the perception of what a service woman is from uh, you know the the idea that the armed forces are no place for a woman I mean, let's remember you know ukrainian society is a pretty traditional society it holds pretty traditional views so there was obviously this kind of backlash you know saying what is a woman doing at the front line she should be at home looking at their children to then perhaps some sort of stage of instrumentalization of women you know saying oh look at these beautiful women in uniform even women take up arms as is often mm -hmm. the case 
to now simply perceiving them as professionals. You know, this is their choice. That's what they want to do. 20, over 20% of um, the armed forces in Ukraine are service women. It's a high number. That is their choice. Um, that's how they choose to contribute to the war effort. And as well as, you know, contributing to the war effort in the most obvious way by, by taking up arms, there's also this huge volunteer movement that I mentioned, and that's essentially run by women. You know, wherever you go, whatever you need to uh, look for and find, and I'm sure Michael will tell you that because he is on the ground, you will encounter women. Um, we see women fleeing, becoming refugees, and women are among those that are hit hardest in times of war because they are the ones looking after defendant, uh, dependents. Um, yeah. They look after siblings, children, elderly parents, and others. They are likely to be the ones um, who might be victims of trafficking. Um, you know, so, so they become really, really vulnerable, but they are also the ones who might not get called up and therefore are engaged in this enormous volunteer movement that is the backbone, not just of the armed forces, but Ukrainian statehood as such. Wow. Well, talking about strong uh, female Ukrainian women, um, we had a guest on the women's panel on Monday. She's a award-winning film director. She's from Ukraine, from Kiev. And um, she's been advocating for pushing the boycott of Russian cinema, her and seven of her colleagues, actually. Um, what are your thoughts on this? And can you explain how this could help maybe stop the bloodshed in Ukraine? Um, so my experience of uh, consuming culture uh, that comes out of Eastern Europe generally, and what used to be the USSR and the Russian Empire before that, here in London, is that everything that we encounter in museums, in cinemas, at uh, film festivals, in galleries, uh, is labeled as Russian, regardless of what it actually is. It's really not uncommon to be somewhere in a gallery in London looking at a piece of art made by, say, a Jewish uh, Soviet, for instance, um, uh, artist that will be ascribed to that artist as, uh, where the artist will be described as Russian. Um, it's not uncommon to see Alexander Dovzhenko, for instance, uh, Ukrainian um, um, uh, director, film director, known all over the world, to be described as Ukraine born. Yeah, not just Ukrainian, but Ukrainian born. That's already an improvement, yeah? Um, or a Belarusian or anybody else uh, described as Russian. So we really need to decolonize our consumption of art, our art, our collections, whatever it is, whether that's cinema, uh, fine art, uh, literature, anything. And if we're serious about that decolonization of knowledge, of our perception, then we should really be focusing on Ukraine. We should really be giving the voice to Ukraine. So let's try and, you know, let's try and flip that question, you know, rather than thinking about boycotting Russia, let's make sure we focus on Ukrainian production, Ukrainian art, we support it, especially now when it's going to be even tougher than before to fund um, uh, Ukrainian art, um, because that's going to be the best thing uh, possible. How it's been dealt with in Ukraine, that's another question. I think um, anything that's been produced um, in the Russian language will simply lose popularity. 
I mean, we know that Ukrainians are bilingual. We have no problem consuming uh, products in the Russian language, but we, but we will not want to. Um, and people are- Marina, sorry to interrupt, but Marina was actually mentioning that the government is financing artists. It's not independent in Russia. Mm -hmm. uh, therefore, they have a responsibility uh, since they are financed by their government to take a stand right now against their government um, and to support the Ukrainians as artists and therefore where her statement came from. So what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you again from uh, my experience as a historian, as a scholar. So, you know, history that is produced in Russia is the sort of history that is approved by the state. And if it's not approved by the state, then you're in deep trouble. And we've seen this. We've seen Memorial, the, the, the oldest human rights uh, uh, organization, closed down. We've seen uh, um, historians who are, who, who are looking at you know, Stalinist war crimes, not something to do with Putin being thrown in jail. So we have to be very careful yeah. uh, when we assess the quality of what is uh, produced in Russia, because it is affected by at least 22 years of very heavy censorship. So again, let's judge, let's judge it by quality. And yes, let's remember that, you know, um, art has played a very big role in preparing ground for Putin's war, at least in the West, the soft power, you know, the euphemism that we, that we use soft power, you know, presenting Russian culture in such a way that um, blinds everything else, that blinds us towards everything else and also blinds us towards Russian imperialism. Right. So you're basically saying that art in Russia is a form of propaganda. They are pushing their agenda through artists. Therefore, lies the problem. Is that it's, it's certainly been used that way? Absolutely, it's certainly been used that way by the state. Yeah. And you are an artist yourself because you have you do theater. I checked your bio, and uh, so what are your um, what do you do exactly? I, I know you have a company right in London. Can you tell us more about that? It's a very small company. Um, it's called Molody Theater uh, London. Um, which is actually, you know, it's uh, this Molody Theater, the historical Molody Theater. I really encourage your viewers to, to look them up. Uh, Les Kurbas uh, Theater in, uh, in Ukraine, which, which was really fantastic. Les Kurbas is one of those people who is uh, in the shadows of what is known as Russian avant-garde. He's, a, he's, a, he's an artist himself of, of avant-garde, but uh, is less known because Ukrainian avant-garde or avant-garde that was being created in Ukraine, um, a lot of those people were simply killed in the 1930s and, when we, and we don't know their stories as, as we should do unless Kurbas is one of them. Anyway, I'll go back to your question about my theater. <laughs> it's, a small, it's a small company. Um, most of us are not trained actors um, and we've been doing pieces uh, that are documentary pieces. So we did our first two shows were about migration, um, migration from Eastern Europe. Um, they were dark comedies. Um, I collected interviews, we translated them into English, and uh, we used people's testimonies to talk about, especially undocumented migration, what it's like to be uh, in the UK as an East European migrant, and Ukrainian included. And the most recent uh, piece that we had was about my brother's story. Um, I, I 
I used some of the documents I uh, found, you know, in, in his belongings, for instance, three videos that he recorded in the trenches just before he died, and, uh, and my, my own reflections about that loss. Um, and yeah, and we uh, toured with it around the UK, we took it to the Fringe, the biggest theatre festival, and we were performing it, um, and people were saying, oh, we didn't realise that the war was still on. Well, wow. so, you know, at the time, people thought it was already finished. Yeah, I um, wanted to chime in. And in fact, we have unverified reports coming in, but I probably believe that it's happening of uh, Russian troops who have already seized certain towns and cities. Believe it or not, one of the things they're doing, they're going to libraries and schools and taking books, historical books, confiscating them. They have a hit list of intellectuals, of teachers and journalists, of others who they've also kidnapped. Those actually are verified stories. So it's very worrisome how they're also trying to do a kind of uh, cleansing, if we, if you can put it that way, of what's going on here on the ground. And some of the Let's archives see. have been destroyed as well yes. already. And that's yeah, a yeah. really sad development too. Yeah. Remember that, you know, our, our archives in Ukraine have been declassified for a long time. So uh, secret services archives from the Soviet era in Kyiv are all completely open and accessible at the time when Putin reclassified his archives. So a lot of historians of Russia or the Soviet Union ended up going to Kyiv to do their research because they could, because they could have access to those documents when they couldn't do it in Moscow. Yeah. And yeah. now they're on the threat. Yeah. Right. In fact, my father just uh, got here in time to when the archives were declassified to get a lot of great KGB and KVD documents about the liquidation mm -hmm. of the church here in Ukraine. Um, Alyssa, I know you're pressed for time, but a couple of really important questions, because one, one did come up today. We talked about uh, the women and children having to cross the border. Uh, as you know, uh, President Biden has uh, declared open 100,000 spaces for Ukrainian refugees. Canada has introduced another generous program for refugees, but I get the sense that as much as possible, people, Ukrainians who have crossed the border would probably like to stay closer to Ukraine, not become full, you know, permanent residents of another country, but actually return here. Is that the sense you're getting as well? Absolutely. I mean, first of all, I think we always need to remember when we talk about refugee crisis and, and the, the, the figures that we see in at the moment, over 10 million people displaced and is growing daily um, because of the brutality of the Russian attack um, on, on targeting civilians. Um, we need to remember that most of those people are displaced within the country. And, and that's often the case in, in wars, right? And, and this is the burden on Ukraine, first and foremost, on those regions that are slightly more safe um, than others. Um, and because of the nature of uh, this war, that there is general mobilization in Ukraine at the moment, the men are obliged, to, most men are obliged to stay behind, and a lot of women are obliged to stay behind as well, or they choose to drop off their children in safety somewhere and come back because they have jobs to go back to that are really important. I don't know, the doctors or they, oh, they're really involved in the volunteer movement, you know, or something like that. The separation is temporary. Nobody will want to be separated from their loved ones for for more than necessary, than, than, than is absolutely necessary. I, my family, I have family all over Ukraine. Nobody is thinking of leaving. Um, I have friends who went back from Europe to Ukraine to help with the volunteer effort, and also some acquaintances here from London who uh, went back and, and enrolled in the territorial defense. 
um, yeah, it's um, I, it definitely is. I think it definitely is the case of people not wanting to stay um, away from Ukraine for a long time. They will want to go back. I can see my colleague scholars who are being offered um, temporary positions uh, in universities across Europe and elsewhere. And a lot of them are saying, well, I'd like to stay, say, in Poland because it'll be quicker for me to return. Nobody, nobody is thinking about settling. Um, yeah, just essentially su surviving this moment and going back and rebuilding Ukraine as quickly as possible. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of the rebuilding, um, so I just got off a of Twitter Spaces discussion and the consensus pretty much there was that we've, we're seeing the limits of Western assistance in terms of lethal weaponry, uh, jets, no-fly zone, that sort of thing. <clears throat> but um, last night, the Economist Intelligence Unit reported that they don't believe Ukraine's GDP will recover to pre-war levels for more than a decade. The cost of reconstruction now is estimated to be nearing, I think, the $70 billion figure. Do you think some of our efforts, and we I speak of quite broadly, should go now towards lobbying the West to start thinking about those numbers, the cost of reconstruction, bridges, airports, buildings, a whole bunch of stuff that's not going, to, roads that are going to have to be reconstructed? Absolutely. And I think Ukrainians have been saying that from day one, that some kind of plan of financial support has, has to be put in place now for the future reconstruction. But we need to also think about reparations and making sure that Russia um, uh, that Russia also uh, you know, pays for, for the war crimes that mm -hmm. it is committing, not just in terms of justice, that is also extremely important, but in terms of reparations. I mean, it, it is, let's not forget who caused this destruction and um, let's hold them accountable. Yeah, yeah. Our, really our heartfelt thanks for uh, Thank so taking time out of your busy schedule and also for everything you're doing. You're, uh, you know, not only on panels and uh, interviews with BBC and others, but uh, uh, in scholarly journals as well. It's an amazing effort. So um, we all hope and pray for a quick end to this violence and mm -hmm. for people, like you say, to be able to come home. Indeed. And thank you for doing all the work that you're doing. And please stay safe. <laughs> thank you. Bye. Thank you, Alessa. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Ось наша славна Україна зажурилася, а ми тую червону калину підіймемо, а ми нашу славну Україну гей-гей розвеселимо. Thank you so much to Alessia Kormeychuk for her time. Uh, we really enjoyed the discussion and also, I think it moves forward um, some of the thinking, some of the discussion on the current war. Where do we go from here? Also, what she said about um, refugees that they're not, you know, planning to, their intention is not to stay in the destination countries and perhaps be a burden there, but that she very much feels, as I do, that uh, folks who left want to come back as soon as possible and rebuild their lives and rebuild the country. So our immense thanks uh, to Alessio. Yeah, and I just want to thank her. I think she's an inspiration. And yeah, as Marina said on the, the women's panel, I mean, they have a consensus here, an agreement that absolutely the refugees wants to go back to Ukraine and yeah. they don't want that war and they want to go back to their motherland. 
So um, that was uh, reinstated and it's very important for people to know that, you know. Um, yes, it was amazing. So here is the end of the show. Um, well, Michael, just stay safe. Keep on doing the great work you're doing, by the way. You are amazing. You're a trooper, a hero. He's still in Ukraine fighting the, you know, the fight and, um, you know, exposing what's going on and revealing um, what's going on locally. So, yeah, we want you to stay safe. Keep on uh, informing us and uh, we shall see you in the next show. Don't forget to subscribe, um, like and share. And uh, yeah, and we also want to, by the way, to thank uh, Pretty Bali, who is in London, uh, who is uh, also a trooper and keeps on, you know, just um, helping us a lot at the moment. There's so much going on. It's been chaotic. All right. Yes. Well, Michael. Thank you. And uh, Melissa, we had a little surprise for you as well. Um, and uh, But before that, I also our thanks to Pretty Bali. Um, I thought it'd be a really cool idea to play a song at the end of the show that has gained a lot of popularity by um, during the war. It's by a group called Shabla, and they sing a song called Bratia Ukrainsi, which means brother Ukrainians. It's actually um, an older song. A lot of people here in Ukraine know it, is that it's become kind of a theme song of this war. And just a quick paragraph, Melissa, is that it starts off with um, a, a guy uh, going to war saying, apologizing to his uh, kids and to his wife and his family and saying, I'm going off to war please don't cry and that if I don't come back um, the trouble I went to will be for our mother Ukraine so it's just a tear-jerking emotional song that is being played a lot here so called Brato Ukrainsi Brothers Ukrainians by Shabla thanks a lot for tuning in thank you bye bye Я йду на війноньку нашу землю захищати. Не плачте за мною, якщо болі згину. Все вітам за любоненьку нашу Україну. Єдинаємося, браття,
Все в поле сгинул, все вида.